Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The Christian religion, wrote A.W. Tozer, has to do with God and man, but its focal point is God, not man. Just think about salvation. Salvation is, we use the term a lot, so we get used to it, but just think about salvation. It is what you need more than anything else, more than anything else, more than the position in your job that you're looking for, more than children who are compliant, more than anything, okay? You need salvation. You're put on this earth, and that's the greatest need of every person, you and everyone you know. And it is the very foundation of Christianity. That is the message of Christianity. It's not just do good things that's involved, but the very foundation is God's done a very good thing so that you can be saved from His coming wrath. Saved from judgment, saved unto paradise eternal. When you think about salvation, you have to ask the question who is salvation about? Naturally, we may be tempted to think salvation is mainly about us because we're the ones getting saved. <laughs> so, salvation is mainly about us. That's not true. That's actually to confuse the grammar of salvation. And if you will forgive me, we are going to talk a little bit about grammar this morning. We're going to keep it very simply. Look, you use grammar every day, okay? So let's keep it real simple. But this is important. When you speak or write or read in English, you usually have three parts to whatever you say or read. Three parts to a sentence. You remember this from school? You have the verb. That's an action. To simplify it, that's an action, okay? Jumping, eating, running, kicking. That's the verb. And then you just have to answer the question, who does it? And who does it get done to? And when you answer who does that, take the verb kicks. Who does kicks? John. John kicks. John is the subject. Follow? Kicks. What does John kick? Who's receiving the action? That's the object. Let's say a ball. John kicks a ball. You got that? Subject, verb, object. And in English, that's the order we put them in. I say this because we're thinking about an action and it's salvation. Saves. Who is saves about? Who is the subject of saves in Christianity? It's not you. It's not you. If you think it's you, you can't be saved. God is the doer of saving. And then where do you fit in? You are the object receiving the action. Okay? See that's simple? That's simple. You can do that. God saves you. Subject, verb, object. And in English, we always put the subject first. And I think in this case, that's good. Because that's usually where the emphasis falls. If you're watching Olympic soccer and John kicks a ball to make a goal in the last second, and they win gold, do you think about the ball that got kicked, or do you think about John? You think about John. He's the subject. He's doing it. When it comes to salvation, salvation is mainly about the God who's doing the salvation. 
And then you and I are thrown on the end as, wow, we receive that. We're the objects, but God is the subject. Christianity, salvation, this world, your life, your job, your family, your car, your kids, everything is about God. So when we bring it to this one subject of salvation, the core of the Christian message, it's not mainly about you. You're involved. It's mainly about God who for thousands of years at great cost to himself has been saving lots of yous, people. But God is the subject, and that's incredibly important. God, God saves, not you save, God saves, God saves you. I'm not saying that we're unimportant in salvation, that's not, what, that's not true whatsoever. You're still in there, see, you're the object. I'm just saying you're not doing it, and you're not the main emphasis, you're not the main point of that sentence, but you are in there. Salvation as an act, in other words, as we'll see in our text today, it doesn't belong to you. Salvation belongs to who? <laughs> belongs to the Lord. That's what Jonah learned. Uh, this is very important to emphasize, especially today, because every culture, every generation, it's got strengths, it has weaknesses. So sometimes we look back at time gone by and think, that was the good old days, everything was perfect. That's not true. There's strengths, there's weaknesses. You look at another culture and you look at strengths, weaknesses, and this, the fact that God's the subject of saving, is incredibly important to emphasize right now in our generation, in our day, because our culture happens to lean away from that. There's the godness part of salvation and the man or humanness object. Where do we lean? We definitely lean heavy into the humanness. We try to take the object and we try to make it the subject. We try to make salvation about us. So for example, I'm not trying to be overly critical here, but if you turn on uh, just a typical Christian radio station and listen to the most popular Christian songs right now, are they mainly about God, a great Savior? Or is He there, but they're mainly about us, my worth, that God would save me, that must mean I'm very worthy. Or if God's giving you trials, that must mean you're very strong. Or, wow, look at all the benefits that you enjoy, and things are hard, but you can have hope. You can. This is you. <laughs> you know that the songs have God in there, but generally speaking, you are the emphasis, humanity, and it makes us feel like that's what Christianity is about, making your life better, making you feel better. This Unfortunately, it's not true. It should be just the opposite. The emphasis is on God. And then we receive a benefit, but to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It does feel better to make us the emphasis of salvation, but it's like eating candy. Of course candy tastes good. It's packed full of sugar, but you eat too much of it and you get sick. And similarly, a Christianity or a view of salvation that puts most of the emphasis on you certainly feels good at first, but you eat too much of it, you get sick. So you can still listen to popular Christian songs, okay? That's fine. Maybe in moderation and find some good God-exalting songs to be the emphasis. But if you make your view of salvation mainly about you, you will be tossed to and fro as if by waves on the ocean. Because you know what? Yesterday you were different than today. 
You wake up and you're different. Sometimes you're a real faithful Christian and sometimes you're struggling. And sometimes it depends on how much sleep you got or how well you slept. Sometimes it's things entirely outside of your control. And if you make your salvation about you, you'll have no anchor for your soul. Your hope, your confidence will come from how well you are doing. Does salvation belong to you? Are you the subject? No. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah had to learn this. As we're going to see today, that is in fact what's on the screen, the very last thing that Jonah says in his prayer. It is a summary of his prayer, but it is also a summary of the single most important lesson in the entire book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you get nothing else from Jonah, that's what you're supposed to get. In other words, God, the Lord, is the subject and the emphasis of salvation. And you benefit, but it's primarily about him and he controls it. Jonah has been going down, running away from God, but now it takes God as the subject to finally lift him up. So let's see that as we finish off this psalm, this prayer, beginning again in verse 6. Jonah prays, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, meaning he was drowning in the water. Yet, you, <laughs> that's an important subject, that's God. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols rather than God forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When God first had suggested that Jonah, you remember, go and preach salvation, well, preach judgment, but suggest salvation to the wicked Ninevites, the enemy of Israel, the capital of Assyria, Jonah didn't want to do it. And he refused, and you remember, really what he did is he mixed up the subject of salvation. He tried to make himself the one to whom salvation belongs. It's in his hand, and he gives it as he pleases, and he didn't want to give it to the Ninevites. So he sticks it in his pocket, and he starts running down to Joppa, goes down into a boat, and finally God stops him with a storm. He's thrown overboard, rightly, and he goes down into the sea, and that's here, this prayer is because God sent a large fish to save him before he drowned by swallowing him. And from the belly of the fish, this prayer is composed. Jonah lamented his situation, and we saw that last week where he just describes how bad it was to almost drown. But now, this prayer is going to become more positive, leading to a great exclamation at the end about salvation. And as I said, the lesson that we learn here, salvation belonging to the Lord, it's the core message of the book of Jonah. Jonah seems to learn it here. He's going to unlearn it in a few chapters. We'll see that. No, nevertheless, what he says is true. And it's this. Look, salvation doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. You may go home and you have a home and you have a vehicle and you have 
Praise God, in this country, you have private property. You have property, things that belong to you. You're still a steward of them, but in some sense, they belong to you. When it comes to salvation, the most important thing in this world, the point is, it's not yours. You don't own it, meaning you don't get to control it. You can drive your car where you want to drive your car. You don't get to take hold of salvation and do what you want with it. It's God's. Jonah wanted to do whatever he wanted with salvation. He wanted salvation on his own head, save me from this, but then he didn't want it for the Ninevites. So he has to learn, whoa, 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 I'm not the subject here. I'm not the one saving. I don't possess salvation. God possesses it. As the New Testament would say, for from him, God, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. That's what Jonah is having to learn inside the fish gut. That is, of course, what you and I are going to have to learn here, too. You might say, that's simple. I think I get that. God saves. I don't. The end. <laughs> I'm sure Jonah thought he got that too. And God had to put him in a fish. So God has to put you here to hear this sermon today to consider these words because it's not enough just to agree, yes, God saves. That's simple enough. You have to take sort of a stylus and put it on the granite of your heart and etch this into it. Salvation belongs to the Lord because I promise you're going to leave here and in practice, not in theory, but in practice, in the way you think, in the way you live your life, you will forget that this week. And that's why God has given us this text right now. Because Jonah had to learn this, and we can stand at a distance and mock Jonah for being ridiculous. But look, you're ridiculous too. You know that's true. You forget this lesson like he does, that salvation belongs to the Lord. So we're going to consider this text, and if you like outlines here... We'll consider it in two parts, which I think the text does as well, using the grammar. We'll consider first the subject of salvation, which is God. And then we will consider the object of salvation, which is us. Subject and object of the verb saves. Let's see that here in this text, beginning where our text begins with the subject of salvation, and that is, as you know, the Lord. It's on the screen. You know this. So Jonah has actually been the subject of this whole text from chapter 1 for the most part, and it's been him doing what? Going down. Going down and going down. So <laughs> he's done a really good job being the subject. He's had some pretty bad verbs, and so now God steps in, as we'll see, and is going to turn him. Look at this contrast that you find, verses 6 and 7. Jonah summarizes the whole book to this point when he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, and now the subject changes to God, and what happens? Yet you, God, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Notice again, I'm not trying to minimize the object of salvation, Jonah and us. Jonah is here in this text. He's writing this prayer. This isn't like some kind of Eastern religion, some form of Buddhism or Hinduism where a goal may be to totally remove the independent self. That's not what we're talking. That's not Christianity. It's simply putting the self in the right place after the verb. That's what we're doing. That's what Jonah has to learn. Jonah is there. This is about Jonah. It's just that, as Tozer said, the focal point is not on Jonah. The focal point is on God. 
Like I said, Jonah is there. He starts verse 6, I. That's Jonah. That I. Second line, I went down. There he is. <laughs> Good job, Jonah. That's all he can boast of. That was his role in this book, going down, failing, rebelling against God, and getting himself in a whole lot of trouble. Usually when you're the subject of the verbs of your life, that's what you do to yourself too, isn't it? And then there's the contrast. What happens now? Yet you, Lord my God, what does God do? He doesn't go down. He brings him up. This verse, almost the exact center of the book of Jonah, if you count the verses, this verse is finally where the going down of chapters 1 and 2 stops, and we are going to begin going up. But when we were going down, Jonah was doing that. <laughs> and now God is acting, and so we go up. Before we consider God as the subject of salvation, let's begin by considering what happens if you don't believe that. If you try to put yourself as the subject of salvation rather than God, then what happens? If you want to emphasize your freedom, emphasize your will, your choice, your decisions. This is my life. I'm making my decisions. I choose whether that's a more an Arminian position. God can't touch my will or just the general American way. You can't tell me I can't do something. Whatever it is, that attitude, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I make the decisions. I think then we're provided the example of Jonah because that's who he is. Think about from the beginning of this book, what does he do? God says, Jonah, get up, go, and Jonah gets up and runs away. Jonah says, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be free. I'm not going to come under the authority of this God who's commanding me to do something that I just don't understand, and I don't want to do it. Jonah is an example of what happens when you put yourself in the driver's seat, because Jonah's been in the driver's seat since the beginning of chapter 1. That's what he's been doing. He's been doing just what he wants to do. And so it's very good of him to summarize what's happened. I went down. <laughs> we today, we're Americans here, for the most part, here in the 21st century. And we do live in a country that was built upon this principle of individual liberty. And I don't want to denigrate that because many good things have come from that, right? Democracy is good. The abolition of slavery, that's good. These are good things. Individual liberty, none of us disagree. But today what's happened is that we got on the boat of individual liberty and sailed it, and now we have gone almost over the waterfall. We are going to the edges of the universe. There's no anchor. There's no restraint. We are taking this principle of individual liberty, my choice, my freedom, which in moderation is very good. We just don't know moderation. And that probably explains much of what we're experiencing as a country. It's us taking that idea of freedom, which is pretty particular to our culture. It's big, freedom, liberty. But we're just driving it as hard as we can. We're like Jehu in the Old Testament who drove his chariot wildly. We're driving that chariot of personal autonomy wildly to the edge of the earth, or rather to the edge of a cliff, and preparing to go over the edge. We are in that way very much like Jonah. We're the subject of our lives. We make the decisions, and we revel in that. We love that. We love it too much, actually. 
So here is an example, and you could give many examples, but this is one that's probably on our minds. Is Think of Genesis chapter 5, where God says, speaking of humankind, male and female, he created them. So that means when God's the subject, when he's doing the creating, he decides, nobody told him to, he just decides to make us all either biologically male or to make us biologically female. This would be what we could call a binary. Probably heard that term. Binary. That means bi means two. There's two things. You're either male or female. There are some genetic variations that blur that, but for the most part, everybody's a male or a female. You don't pick. Your parents don't pick. Who picks? God. He chooses which of those binaries biologically you are. Now, some persons throughout the history of the whole world have been born one of those biological sexes, and then as they grow up, this is a broken world. You know that. This is a very broken world after the fall, and as they grow up, come to desire that they actually were the other biological sex. So, we come to a place where there is a choice. Now that, I don't know where that desire is coming from. It's a messed up world, right? So some of you have experienced this or you know people who experience this desire to be the other biological sex. You have a choice at that time. You can go, I have this desire, but it's not in accordance with the way that God made me. And so I'm going to submit it, even if it's very hard. But we've taken the alternative as a culture, which is not even God himself can tell me who I am. But even if God created me in this biological sex, now we will make something gender, which is socially constructed, and I can be the other biological sex just by gender, meaning that's how I identify. So you know all these terms. This is, we know this. So now I get to decide if I'm male or female. Male or female, he created them, and we say no. I decide if I'm male or female, not biology, which means not God. Listen, when we have this discussion, it's easy for many people to get very angry because if you love your country and you see that and you think, that's ruining our country. So look at conservative unbelievers in the culture and they're angry about it. Listen, don't get angry about it right now. Stop and think for a moment. What was Jonah trying to accomplish when he was running away from God? It was genuinely as he has to learn, his own salvation. Jonah was scared to go there. He didn't want to obey God. He was scared what the consequences would be, and therefore, he's not just deciding to be his own creator, his own authority. He's deciding to be his own savior. Why else would he say at the end, salvation belongs to the Lord? It doesn't belong to me. He's trying to save himself from the consequences of going to Nineveh. And that's why he rebels against God. When you consider this non-binary mindset today, LGBTQ, it is an attempt at salvation. That's what it is, primarily, above almost everything else. Certainly, you could just look straight at it. It is a rebellion against God's rules. But look, all of our rebellion against God's rules is an attempt to save ourselves from whatever we don't want our lives to be. And so when you, yourself, if you've struggled with same-sex attraction or that stuff, or if you know others who do, you should know that, yes, they're in rebellion, but they are trying to save 
themselves. And they need to know that they can't do it. They need to know that salvation belongs to the Lord. That He's the only one who can. Not them. We naturally, all of us, and I know for some, when you think about non-binary, homosexuality, LGBTQ, for some who've never struggled with that temptation, just baffles your mind. Get over it. What? What is going? And there are others who perhaps have struggled, even as believers, with that. And you know that it's like any other sin, the temptation to rebel against what God wants. And it can be hard. And if someone has struggled with that desire to be the other sex than what they actually are, and they're looking at their future, and they're thinking, I can either come under God's authority and live what seems to me would be a very horrible life, a very difficult life, of this desire never satisfied, never fulfilled, or I can say, let us cast their bonds apart from us. Let's rip off the yoke of God and I will save myself. I will save my future. I will be self-actualized. I'll be fulfilled. I'll be satisfied. Look, this is what makes sense. Seeing this as a, an attempt at salvation will make more sense when you look at what's happening in the culture. This is a movement that's sweeping very quickly across the culture and has been for some time. And you go, how is this you just look at the biology and say it seems common sense that that's not magic. But no, this is an attempt at salvation. And therefore, those who are fighting for the advancement of LGBTQ, it's because to them, they're evangelists. And they're bringing the good news that you can be liberated from a horrible life. You can save yourself by bucking against the way you were biologically created to be. And therefore, they form, you know this, they form very tight-knit communities. They experience a sort of persecution. It's almost like a church, and they become saviors to themselves. It's, a, it's like a religion. That's why as a movement, it gains traction. Especially among younger people, there's a sense of nobility. Again, because it feels like salvation. We're setting people free. Everyone's judging them for this, but we'll set them free. We'll say, you don't have to worry about God's standard anymore or your biology. You can be free. And at first, it feels like I've been saved. But it's like eating lots of candy. And those who have tried to set themselves free and be their own savior in this way come to find that salvation doesn't work like that. And there is an incredible disappointment, broken relationships, despair, suicide, partly from mistreatment of others, but also just from the nature of things. That shouldn't first make you angry. That should first break your heart. And you can say, I'll have a righteous anger. Jonah thought he had a righteous anger. <laughs> I'm just saying... It's hard to have a righteous anger, okay? So, yeah, you, there's some room for righteous anger, certainly. But that should certainly also break your heart. You look at Jonah, and it's easy to mock him, but he's trying to save himself. Any way that we, in our own sin, whatever the temptation, whatever, that's just one example, but whatever the sin may be, it's us trying to save ourselves, trying to make ourselves the subject of our own salvation, to be our own saviors, and you know how it always turns out, always, right here in our text. When Jonah is the subject, I, what happens? I went down. He felt like freedom. 
Jonah escaped the authoritarian, patriarchal command of God that may have felt toxic to him, and he sets himself free, and he goes down. If you're a believer, when those in the LGBTQ community go down, you want to be there. Because when God is the subject, yet you brought me up. You've got the real good news. You are not your own savior. You cannot be your own savior. The only thing you can do is what Jonah did. You can sink yourself. <laughs> Congratulations. That's what you are capable of. Whatever inherent goodness you have, you are good enough to sink yourself into condemnation. And that's all. When you self-actualize, when you follow your heart, when you believe in yourself, that is where it takes you, down to the bottom of the ocean. Even if it felt like salvation at first, if God is gracious, you'll eventually realize that's not salvation. Because salvation is not of you, salvation is of the Lord. So you're not the subject, then who is the subject? It is the Lord. And you see that here. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Really, verse 7 just goes back in time to explain how this all came about. How did he bring him up from the pit? Well, when my life was fainting away at the bottom of the sea, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple, meaning where your presence is. Jonah had, as one commentator pointed out, he was trying really hard to forget the Lord. And when we take the driver's seat of our life, that's what you have to do. You feel guilty, you forget the Lord. But finally, at its lowest point, is when he remembers the Lord. Remembers Him and prays to Him, finally bends the knee. He's been eating or wanting to eat the pods that the pigs eat. He's taken himself to a very low point. And then he comes to himself and says, I will arise and go to my Father. I will turn to God. I mean, it's either that or just drown. So I at least should pray. And he prayed and you know that many, even in this room, many of you have prayed from the bottom of the sea, just like Jonah. It's then, and sometimes it's only then, that you finally remember the Lord, that you're finally willing for Him to be the one who saves, who owns salvation and delivers you and not to save yourself. And the fact is that no matter how deeply into uncleanness and unholiness you have sunk by the time you remember the Lord and pray to Him, your unclean, filthy prayer still, like Jonah says, enters into the very holy temple of God. He will receive a filthy, poorly kept, nasty, unclean prayer from an unclean person at the bottom of the sea. It can come, Jonah says, even into his holy temple if it's accompanied with a bended knee, with humility. And God is gracious to receive it in. What about for you? Jonah says, my life was fainting away. Maybe that's you right now. A consequence of your sins. Are you addicted to something or same-sex attraction or some other form of addiction? Are you addicted to the American dream? Are you craving that you will get the promotion of the nice house and the dog and the one and a half kids and that's what your life has to be? You're addicted to that. You need help. This is help. Get yourself out of the subject. God is the subject of salvation, and only He can save you. What do you have to do? Remember the Lord. Just remember the Lord. Stop trying to neglect Him and forget Him. Bend your knee, and He will bring you up. 
So the subject of salvation is not you. The subject of salvation is God. True in this life, true in the life to come, always true. Now, as I said, that doesn't mean you're nothing. (laughs) We're not trying to make you feel like dirt and scum. You are the object of salvation. So let's turn now from the subject and let's look at the object. God saves, that's established. Who does God save? Well, verse 8, actually, as we continue here, it tells us who God does not save. And then verse 9 tells us who he does. So verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That word steadfast love in the Hebrew is hesed. It is the most important Hebrew word in the Old Testament, perhaps besides the name of God. And it speaks of a very loyal, faithful love within a covenant commitment, such as God has for his people and they are supposed to have for him. And really, in the Hebrew, this could be referring, they forsake hesed. This could be referring to the fact that they break the covenant by following idols if they're a Jew. But I think the ESV has it right. It does it the other way and says that really, those who follow idols, they forsake their own hope of ever receiving the fullness of God's faithful love. Again, speaking of where we are culturally today, some think that because God's love is hesed, it is a very faithful and a loyal kind of love that it really doesn't matter what your life is like. You can follow all the idols you want. You can live a very rebellious life against God. You can basically be Jonah your entire life. That's fine. God forgives. Isn't that his job? Isn't that what he does? So putting mankind as the object of salvation, Jonah makes sure to tell you that doesn't mean every person on earth is automatically saved. Because look what he says. There's a group, those who pay regard to vain idols, and they forsake their hope of steadfast love. They don't receive it. It doesn't fully express itself to them. They don't receive salvation. In other words, if you or I are the subject of Christianity and its main point, that makes no sense. Of course, God would save us. We're very important people. (laughs) But you're not. God is. Therefore, God has the prerogative to say, if you don't bend your knee to me, I will not accept you. That doesn't minimize God's love. That simply says you're not the subject of it. You don't get to choose your own terms for salvation. God chooses and you receive the action of that. God is a God of hesed love, but that loyal love, Jonah says, is only for those united to him through the blood of Christ, really, in covenant with him. So to make it simpler, we could just say this. Listen, you only get to be one part of the sentence. You can either try to make yourself the subject You control salvation. But if that's true, you don't get to be the object. You don't actually get to be saved. Or you can be the object and receive salvation, but if so, you have to receive it. You are not the author of it. You are not the owner of it. You can't live your life in idolatry, really worshiping everything else, the American dream, your non-binary lifestyle, or sin of any kind, pleasure, pride, You live for that. That's idolatry within your heart. You bow to that. You need that. You crave that. That's your whole life. It's characterized. You don't just struggle with it. It characterizes your whole life. And you want to take hold of salvation and say, it's still mine. And Jonah is saying here, that's not true. You don't get to call the shots. Salvation's not of you. God is the Savior. And you have to come to him on his terms. 
that moves you from the spotlight to the background when it comes to salvation. What are God's terms? You can't follow idols. You can't worship God and mammon. This is really the doctrine of repentance. It means when you come to Christ, you turn from your sin. It's not you coming by your own efforts. It's simply you turning your attention to God Himself as Savior. It's you not trying to save yourself and be your own Savior and bow to whatever you think will save you, whatever you want your life to be. It's coming under His authority when He says, this is how you're saved. There is not another way. It's not a hard way to be saved. It's turning away in your heart from sin. And it's turning to Him and saying, I need you. I need you to be the subject. I need you to save me. And you do that and you're saved. It's not complicated, but it requires a knee that's bent because salvation belongs to the Lord. He makes the terms. That's the negative of who is not the object, but who is the object of salvation, verse 9 tells us. Jonah again, but I, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Don't misunderstand that. That is not Jonah trying to pay God off. Say, save me and I will give you animal sacrifices. The Greeks did that. The other nations did that. God says, I don't need your sacrifices. Jonah's not saying, God, if you save me, I will offer sacrifices to you. God has already saved Jonah from the perspective of this prayer. This comes after salvation. That's why he says, with the voice of thanksgiving, I'll sacrifice to you. And I'll vow to make more sacrifices in the future. Jonah here is like the pagan sailors. They did the same. It was after the sea was stilled. Then they offered sacrifices. You can't pay God off. That'd make you your own savior yet again. And you are not. Jonah's point is, you can have salvation as the object. But God has to be the subject. He is the one who saves. And then we respond in gratitude for what he has already done. Jonah wanted to be the subject. Got a lot of grammar this morning. Good job. Jonah wanted to be the subject. He wanted to be the one to save himself. He wanted to call the shots in his own life, and he runs from God to the bottom of the sea. And it's only there he bends the knee, and he gets the grammar right. What about for you? Is your grammar of salvation right, or is it wrong? Is it this way, or is it this way? Your soul is in the balance. This really makes all the difference between those who will enter into paradise and those who will not. And you can only be in one part of the sentence. And for some of you who are here, you're in the subject right now. And you have been trying to save yourself. Perhaps even coming to church to you is one way to save yourself. If you ask, how do I know if I'm trying to save myself? One way you'll know, it's not always, but one way you'll know is... Like Jonah, if you think you own salvation, do you choose in your mind who gets it and who doesn't? Do you have the people you don't like, the Ninevites, and you think they don't get salvation? They can't be saved. It's a sign that you're the subject. No, you bend your knee before God and God saves whom he pleases. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You hear her holding fast onto the scepter of God. You've gone up onto his throne and you are sitting there this morning and you are determining, you're decreeing, I'm saved, this is what I get, this is how I can live my life. God says, you can be saved, but you've got to let go. And 
humbly slide down off that seat that is not your seat and bend your knee. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Bend your heart before him and you move from the subject to the object. That's it. You do that and you receive salvation. Salvation is not something you own. It's not yours to give out as you please or to put upon yourself as you please. You come to God on his terms because salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you very much that these things are true and that you are the one who saves, the God who saves. You understandably are the God who judges. That's right, for you're judged, just. You are the God who rules, of course. Your power is unlimited. You are the God who sees. Well, you are everywhere at all times and your knowledge is infinite. How could you not see? But that you are the God who saves causes our hearts really to marvel. And that that salvation, it doesn't depend upon us, that it's something we are only here receiving. We thank you for this, Lord, and we renew in our own hearts this conviction that salvation belongs to you. We receive it, but may you have the spotlight. And may all who come and hear of you from this pulpit ever into the future not go away saying, wow, what a nice sermon, but rather... What a Savior. Please drive that into our hearts this week. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.